Well, listen, I, I'm excited this morning to be jumping into God's Word. We are in uh, our series called A Better Treasure, and we're continuing to navigate through the Sermon on the Mount. And really, um, what we've been walking through in Matthew chapter 6 and 7 is Jesus helping us see and shape our view of what it looks like when we treasure Him above everything else, when we don't allow anything to compete in our life with the treasure of Jesus Christ and the treasure of His kingdom. And He's showing us what happens in our life when we do that. When we put Him first, when we treasure Him, we looked at in the first week how it speaks to our possessions and our finances. And we, we don't lay up treasures on earth, we lay up treasures in heaven because where our treasure is, our heart will be. So Jesus says, treasure me. Um, we looked at how treasuring Jesus speaks to and, and helps us uh, navigate through and deal with worry and anxiety. When Jesus says, do not be anxious, he said, but uh, rather seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, treasure the kingdom and then all these things will be added to you. We saw how treasuring Jesus speaks to how we judge one another and how God's, the, the, the citizens of God's kingdom are going to deal with the sin in their life before they help deal with the sin in someone else's. And then last week, um, we walked with Pastor Todd, and what we discovered, Jesus put a very simple message forward. It was simple, but it wasn't easy, and it was this. There are really two paths. There's two gates, a wide and a narrow. And there's two roads, an easy and a hard and there are two groups of people, the many and the few. And there are two destinations, destruction and life. And Jesus said that for those who embrace me, who treasure me, who are embracing the narrow gate in the hard way, who are part of the few people, though they are part of the few, they are going to find life. And so this morning, we're going to continue in Matthew Seven, uh, and we're going to look and, and see what how Jesus begins to address a kind of a, a new issue, and he's going to deal with the issue of false prophets, false prophets. Kind of an interesting uh, uh, little section here in the Sermon on the Mount, and so we're going to talk a lot about false prophets this morning. So I want to kind of give us a working definition of what that means. What do I mean when I say false prophet? Here's kind of what I mean. It's this: a false prophet is one that claims to be from God, speaking on God's behalf, but whose teaching is contrary to God's word and the true message of Christ. That's a false prophet. Somebody who claims to be from God, who claims to be speaking on God's behalf, but whose teaching is contrary to God's word and contrary to the true message of Christ. And what Jesus is going to show us is that these false prophets may have the appearance of the kingdom, but they lack the substance of the kingdom. That's what he's going to be showing us this morning. And listen, this is incredibly important for us as God's people. It's incredibly important that we are able to discern those who are true and those who are false, those who are genuine and those who aren't, because often things look the part, right? They have the appearance, but they lack the substance, all right? So I was born in the mid-70s, uh, grew up a child of the 80s. Anybody else with me, all right? Any other Flock of Seagull fans in here? <laughs> anyway, um, 
And so, if you don't know who the flock of seagulls are, you're just not at the cool kids' table. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, gosh. Um, and so I grew up with this really kind of crazy uh, decorate, decoration that almost every home had in the 80s, and some of you may still have, and if so, awesome, um, called plastic fruit. Anybody remember that? Did, you, did y'all have plastic fruit, some of you ladies, right out on the table, right? And listen, if you bought the good plastic fruit, it looked real, right? Am I the only person that picked up uh, some plastic fruit and tried to eat it and then realized it was actually just packing peanuts, right? That's the way it felt, right? It had the appearance of being real, but it lacked the substance. Um, also, as a, as a child of the 80s, we navigated through a very, very dark uh, time where we had to wrestle with and overcome a product called New Coke. Anybody remember that? Anybody remember New Coke, right? So I'm going to tell you a little something about New Coke. Um, New Coke was in a Coke can. It said the word Coke right there on the side. When you poured it out, it looked like Coke. It even smelled like Coke. But the moment you drink it, your body said, that ain't Coke. That's a terrible product, and you should never drink that again, right? It had the appearance. It lacked the substance. Um, we have a, I've had a lot of friends through the years who uh, have worked in the banking industry. We have some uh, in our church who work in the banking uh, industry, and I've always found it interesting One of the most important skills uh, a banker has, uh, particularly a teller that handles a large amount of money, is the ability to tell real money from counterfeit. It's an incredibly important skill that they have, and it's one that they have to train to uh, build and to be good at. What I've always found interesting, though, is when when a bank teller is training to tell the difference between real money and counterfeit money, they don't train by handling a lot of counterfeit money. They train by handling a lot of real money. And they handle real money so often that the moment something that is not real hits their hand, they know it. Right? And I think what we're going to discover this morning is in that same way, our ability to know false prophets, to discern good fruit from from bad fruit, true from false is not going to come in spending our time trying to be familiar with every false teaching. It's going to come from drawing near to the one who is true. It's going to come from knowing Jesus more and more. So grab your Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 7 with me. We're going to be, um, primarily focus uh, in verse 15 through 20, but I want to back up to the two verses we touched on last week, which is verse 13 and 14. I want to walk through those. I think they help give a little bit of context to where we're going to be today. So start with me in verse 13. Jesus says this. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit, and a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them 
by their fruits. Now, why do you think it is that immediately after Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, he says, beware of false prophets? Why do you think he he immediately goes? Because it feels like a hard left turn. Because here, here we are now at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We're at the end of this epic sermon about life in the kingdom of God and what it means to walk with Jesus and to live our lives on mission with our, with our heart being transformed by Christ and treasuring him. And we're coming to the end and Jesus is bringing us and, and his disciples and all those who were around to this moment of response and this moment of decision. And he's saying, there are two gates There's a wide and a narrow, and there are two roads that people are on, an easy one and a hard one. And there's two groups of people. There's the many, and there's the few, and there's two destinations. It is destruction, and it is life. And I am imploring you to come and enter by the narrow gate. But listen, there are going to be false prophets among you. There are going to be those who dress up like a kingdom citizen, but are leading toward the wide gate of destruction. And Jesus says we have to beware. Beware. That's the first word he uses in uh, Matthew 7, 15, is beware. This is not the first time Jesus has used this word in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he uses the exact same word in the exact same way, except he says it this way. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. That's, he uses that word there. In other words, here's what that word means. Pay attention. <laughs> be on high alert. Be, watch yourself. Be mindful of yourself. Jesus says in Matthew 6, pay attention. Be on high alert, be on guard that you don't practice your righteousness so that others see you doing it. He says, and in that same way, pay attention, be on high alert, look out for those who are false among you. He says in verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, before we navigate through 16 through 20, there's some things we need to just take a hold of very quickly from this uh, first verse and from this one verse uh, in verse 15. So I want to put some things in front of you about false prophets that'll kind of help us as we go. Very quickly, it's this, false prophets are real, um, they are hard to spot, and they are dangerous. That's what we get from Matthew 7, 15. False prophets are real, they are hard to spot, and they are are dangerous. Listen, false prophets are a reality. They are a reality. Um, Jesus uh, identifies right away that there are false prophets. There are going to be those who try and come among God's people to lead them away from God's truth. And this warning of false prophets is consistent throughout the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. We see it in Deuteronomy. We see it in um, Isaiah uh, 28, excuse me, where he describes them. We see in Jeremiah 14 where he talks about them. Jesus continues to warn, about, warn us about them in Matthew chapter 24, verse 5 and 11, where he says, there will be many false prophets that come in my name, and they will lead many people astray. 
We see the apostles engage a false prophet in Acts chapter 13, this Jewish magician by the name of Bar-Jesus. And then look at what 2 Peter says about them in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. But their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Do you see the shared words between Jesus and Peter? Jesus said they're going to come in among the sheep. And many are going to follow after them, but their end is destruction. This is a reality. False prophets are a reality. Here's the second thing. They are hard to spot. False prophets are hard to spot. All right? There's not a um, false prophet convention where everybody slaps on a name tag and says, hello, my name is Liar. They don't do that. I wish they did. I really do. I I wish they wore name tags, um, but they don't, and that's what makes them dangerous, right? They come as wolves dressed as sheep. I like the false prophets who are easy to spot. I like the ones who teach something so obviously out of line with God's word, I'm able to go, nah, that dude's false, right? I like the ones who are doing things so contrary to the nature and character of God that I'm able to look at them and go, no, that's a false prophet right there. But it wasn't hard to figure out Jim Jones was a false prophet. Right? If you don't know who Jim Jones is, you can look that up. Um, all, all of these guys who for the last 30, 40, 50 years have been predicting the end of time. Right? There have been a few of those. I read about a, a guy who predicted that the Lord was, the end of time was going to happen in 78 and it didn't happen. So then he predicted 83 and it didn't happen. And then he predicted 85 and it didn't happen. All right? So three, he had three swings, struck out. Now, he, that dude died pastoring a church. I'm like, did y'all not read his books where he said that three times a world? That's a false prophet, right? That is a false prophet. But listen, the Jim Joneses of the world, those end of time people who just figured, think they got it all figured out, I don't worry about them. They don't worry me. The false prophet that worries me is the one who is disguised. The false prophet that worries me is the one who has the meat of a lie wrapped in the skin of a truth. You with me? You have the meat of a lie, but they wrap it in the veil of a truth. That's the one that worries me. And Jesus says we have to to beware because they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are the most ravenous of animals, dressed up like the most harmless of animals. They will look the part. They will know how to play the part. They will wear the uniform of the kingdom. They will do things like use narrow gate language. Most false prophets today, you know what they know really well? The Bible. And they use it and they use it out of context, and they misquote it, and they twist it for selfish 
games. They know how to use narrow gate language because they want to convince you they are among the few on the hard road and headed toward life. D.A. Carson said this. He said, warnings against false prophets are based on the conviction that not all prophets are true, that truth can be violated, and that the gospel's enemies usually conceal their hostility and try to pass themselves off as fellow believers. They're hard to spot. So they're real. They're hard to spot. Here's the last thing. They are destructive. False prophets are destructive. Listen, when a wolf enters the sheep pen, he doesn't come in to make the sheep better, right? He doesn't come in to bring blessing, and he doesn't come in to tell them what a great job they're doing being sheep. He comes in to destroy. When I was growing up, we grew up out in the country, we had chickens, and uh, every day, it was my job or my brother's job, and we usually fought over who had to go do it to go feed the chickens and, and get the eggs. And so I remember going down there one day, and... Um, our neighbor had a giant German shepherd and I was terrified of this dog. And one day I go down and this German shepherd has dug under the fence of our chicken coop and he had killed every single chicken and he had just killed the last one and it was still in his mouth. He hadn't eaten any of them. He had killed every one of them. Now I was little and I thought it was a wolf. And so I, <laughs> I ran back to the house and I was like, Dad, there's a wolf. It killed the chickens. And my dad, you ever have your parents look at you and they're just disappointed in what just came out of your mouth? He was like, I'm just, it just makes me sad. I literally ran and cried wolf. Legitimately ran and quiet, cried wolf. And uh, my dad comes down there, sees it's the neighbor's German shepherd. And listen, I don't know if all dogs go to heaven, but we gave that one a chance. We really did. And so... We, we gave it an opportunity to, to at least find out what happens after, uh, at what, what, what's beyond this life for a dog. And so, um, but it had come into that pen and killed every single, brought absolute destruction. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief, the liar, those who are false, they come in to steal and to kill and to destroy. It's why they come in. They are destructive and they are dangerous, listen, because they distract the kingdom citizen from the true kingdom purpose and they dilute the kingdom message. And this culture is filled with false prophets who are diluting the true kingdom message. And we have to know it. We have to see it. We've got to be able to identify it so that we can run from it and cling to Jesus. This is what Jesus was dealing with, um, with the Pharisees, right? This is why time and time again through this sermon and through all of Jesus' teaching, he is pointing back to the Pharisees and going, don't do it like they do it. They are false prophets because they look the part, they know some Bible, but they have rejected the true gospel. That's why Jesus, the heart of this entire sermon is Matthew 5.20 where Jesus says, if you don't have a righteousness greater than theirs, you're not going to enter the kingdom. In other words, if you don't have something that they are missing, you're not getting into heaven because they are false. Jesus described them as whitewashed tombs. 
freshly painted graves that look great on the outside but are full of dead men's bones. We have to, to heed this warning. And listen, there are teachers and there are preachers in our culture who are preaching a, a version of the gospel and a form of Jesus, but they are rejecting the fullness of God's word and the fullness of Christ. And so you hear gospels that sound like um, uh, Jesus came to make your life better. Is there some truth in that? Yes. Jesus came to just make you happy. Jesus came so you could have everything you ever wanted, and in coming to him, you'll have it. Jesus just really wants you to be a good person. Now, is there a measure of truth there? Yes. Is it the fullness of the kingdom? No, it's not. So what do we do? How do we spot the false prophet? How do we, how do we spot the wolf in sheep's clothing? And Jesus says we have to inspect the fruit. There's some inspection required here. Look at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree, excuse me, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. It's not possible. And a good tree, and nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Did you see the bookend here? Jesus begins verse 16 and ends verse 20 with the exact same words. You will know them. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is saying you will know them by what their life produces. That's how you'll know who is true and who is false. He's using a very simple image, a very simple picture here to help us um, understand a, a very profound truth, and that is this. The root that you cannot see determines the fruit you do see. And the fruit you do see exposes the root you don't see. So let's just, let's just hold on to this for a minute. The fruit you are producing in your life is exposing what is at the root of your life. So just sit with that. And if your life isn't producing anything, it is still exposing what's at the root. And I want to tell you, my flesh, just like yours, is allergic to this kind of teaching. It does not like it. Because I'm just as prone as you to want to just hold on to a gospel that says, Jesus just wants me to do my best and be a good person. I'm just as tempted as you are to let that be the way I measure my walk. But what Jesus is saying is, you're going to know who's true, who's genuine, by what their life is producing. 
Because what our lives produce tells the world what is at the root, what is at the heart. We have to inspect the fruit. Jesus expounded on this a little bit more in John chapter 15, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. By the way, if you're, if you're ever just wanting to read some chapters that really um, is Jesus painting this beautiful picture of what it looks, looks like to walk in Him and live in Him and, and let the Holy Spirit work in your life, read John 14, 15, and 16. They are beautiful, wonderful. And in John chapter 15, look at what Jesus says in verse 4 and 5. Again, he's unpacking this idea of bearing fruit. He says, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me... You don't bear anything. You can do nothing. Look at verse 8. And by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so what? Say that word. Prove to be my disciples. The proof of discipleship is evidenced in the fruit that glorifies God. Jesus says, they will, um, by this my Father is glorified that you live a life that is bearing much fruit. And in that, so prove to be my disciples. Now let's take that and flip it backwards for just a moment. If bearing much fruit proves I am a disciple of Christ, then what does bearing no fruit say? I told you we're allergic to this. <laughs> what does it mean if my life is not bearing fruit? Gospel fruit. Jesus says, when you abide in me and I in you, you will not you might, you will bear much fruit. But when you aren't abiding, listen, you cannot reproduce what you aren't connected to. You cannot make over what you have not been made once. You, ha you cannot make again and reproduce out a gospel result and a gospel product if you haven't been born again into the gospel and if you aren't abiding in Christ. What's your life producing? Is there in you an authentic faith that loves Jesus, that really does treasure him? And I'm not talking about I like him enough to come to church. I mean, he's the treasure. Is there a burden for the lost in your life? Is there this burning desire that what you've experienced, you want somebody else to have? Is there a growing love for the church of Jesus Christ? Is there this confident hope that shapes every one of your days that Jesus really is coming again? Is your life producing? Do those things mark you? 
Let me ask another question. Do those things mark the people you listen to and follow? Because the point Jesus is making here um, is if they don't, they're false. If the people you listen to and follow are not marked by an authentic love for Jesus and a faith in him, where nothing else in their life gets to compete with him, if they are not marked by a burden for the lost, if they aren't marked with a love for the church, if they aren't marked with a firm belief that Jesus is coming again, Jesus says we've got to inspect the fruit. We have to be willing to examine their words and their works. Listen, that means we've got to look at the teaching and their living. So I just want you to hear me for a moment. I'm going to encourage you. Don't you dare just take my word for it. Don't just assume that I get it right every time. Okay, I, I am as fallen and fallible and weak and in desperate need of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit and of the blood of Jesus Christ every day, don't dare just take my word for it. There's a reason why in James chapter 3, God's word tells us not many should desire to be teachers. Because there is a greater strictness in the judgment. Because a teacher has the ability to either lead people to God's glory or away from it. I, every time I get up here, it is not lost on me, and I do not forget that I will give an account. Yes, for how I led my family, how I loved my wife, how I raised my children, and for every word I said from this spot. That's, that's only mildly horrifying, Right? But what's, what's the point? We've got to be willing to inspect the fruit. And there doesn't need to be anyone that you invite into who you listen to to shape your view of Jesus that is not walking with him and doing the things they're teaching. So how do we know? What, what do we do? Just like that, it's like the bank teller who spends so much time with real money. They know exactly how it feels that the moment something that isn't authentic touches the hand, they know it's fake. They know it. In that same very way, it is our nearness to Jesus. It is our intimacy with Jesus that positions us to know what is true and what is false. And here's why. Because the more we know him and the more we experience him, the more we know what is not him. That's called discernment, by the way. It's called discernment. That's another one of them churchy words that sometimes I'm not sure we know what that means. Spiritual discernment is... Yes, being able to distinguish right from wrong, but it's, it's more than that. It's being able to distinguish the truth from a lie. 
what is genuine from what is inauthentic, right? What is primary from what is secondary. What is, what is indispensable from what is indifferent. Spiritual discernment allows us to distinguish from what is, between what is good and what is better, and from what is better to what is best. And listen, this is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it is one every believer should be growing in. And I want to tell you something about discernment, about the ability to know right from wrong, to hear the voice of the Lord, to feel the Holy Spirit identify when something is, just isn't right. That takes practice. It takes time with the Lord. It takes um, preparation and intimacy with Jesus. I want you to look at what Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 says. The writer says, but solid food is for the mature. Listen to this. For those who have their powers of discernment, say the next word, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's a rhythm you keep. So, so how do we train in discernment? Because my fear is there are people in this room who really do love Jesus. You really do want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. You really are trying, you wanting to treasure him in your life. But because we don't have spiritual discernment, we are allowing, we are allowing false prophets in to speak in. So, how do we do this? How do we grow in spiritual discernment? I'm going to give you three quick ways. Here's the first one. We walk by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? It means to walk daily surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit. If you have been saved, you have been filled by the Holy Spirit. It's what God's Word says. As a matter of fact, you're saved because of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that drew you and opened your eyes to your need for salvation. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one comes to me unless my Father draws him to me. Well, who draws us to the Father? It's, that's the Holy Spirit awakening, awakening us to that. So he has awakened us to our need for salvation. He has secured our salvation. It says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he sanctifies us, meaning he, he refines us and makes us more like Jesus through our salvation. And Jesus said, it is this Holy Spirit who is our helper. He is our guide. He is our teacher. And he is always leading us to truth. Why do I need that? Because my flesh wants to believe this is easy. My flesh wants to believe that I really can have everything I want. My flesh wants to believe that I can love Jesus and still hold on to my sin. But Paul says in Galatians 5 that the flesh and the spirit wage war against one another. He said, and if you want to grow in what is true and what isn't, what is real and what is fake, what is right, wrong, what is holy, and what is sinful. You want to grow in that? He says, for I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Because when we are walking by the Spirit, he says just a few verses after that in Galatians chapter 5, what starts to happen is in walking with the Spirit, fruit starts getting produced in your life. 
things start growing in you. Things that are called love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And as you grow in these fruits, you grow in the discernment to see these fruits in others. And a prophet who can only talk about the fruit but isn't bearing the fruit is false. But how do you know if he's false if you're not walking by the Spirit? There are two primary ways we walk by the Spirit. We live in the Word, and we are constant in prayer. And I know you're saying, preacher, if we just spent 35 minutes for you to tell me to read my Bible and pray more, why didn't you just say that five minutes ago so we could have left? <laughs> Don't hear me say, read your Bible more. Hear me say, live in God's Word. Know it beyond your head. Hide it in your heart. Let it grip you. Listen, church, I want you to hear me say this. One of the reasons that we struggle to spot a false prophet and a false teacher and, and doctrine that is false is because we are biblically illiterate. We don't know what the Bible says. And we struggle to identify what is false because we aren't living in what is true. So that when someone comes along teaching something out of line with God's word, we often lack the biblical awareness to push back against it. And if we don't know the Bible, it is impossible to identify what is false because in knowing the Bible, I get rooted in truth. And I begin to know what it is that I believe. But when I don't know the Bible, I'm not rooted in truth. And I have no idea what it actually is that I believe. And if we aren't living in the word, we are powerless to push back against what is false. Listen, because we are rudderless trying to find what is true. And we start becoming those people that Paul says, don't be this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, don't be like children who are tossed to and fro by every doctrine that comes along. If it sounds good, I'll take a little bit of that. He said, that's what, that's what infants do. And they're just tossed around in this sea of false doctrine and hypocrisy. Paul says, you want to know how you navigate through that? You get the rudder of the truth. We live in God's word. Listen. This is why so many people run to a gospel that says Jesus came to make your life better, not to deal with your sin. People love the gospel that says Jesus came to make my life happy, not make me holy. This is why people love churches that don't hold them accountable and leave the ones that do. This is why we have a culture that's gotten very comfortable with our politics and our social issues becoming our gospel rather than letting the gospel inform our politics and inspire socially. It's either amen or ouch. I don't know what, where you are in that.
But Paul said, Timothy, this book is God-breathed. It is his breath of life for us. And it'll teach you. It'll correct you. It'll train you. It'll strengthen you. And it'll let you know what is true. Live in the word. And we have to be constant in prayer. Romans 12, 12 says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. What does that mean? Does that mean pray every minute of every day? No, that's impossible. It means to persist in prayer, right? To persevere in prayer, to stay at it, to be devoted to it. Don't give up. Don't slack off. Be habitual in your praying. It is the opposite of random, occasional, sporadic praying. Jesus said it's the opposite of that. Be constant. Be steady. Be committed to it. Approach prayer the way you do eating and sleeping and going to work. It is a steady rhythm of your life. Why? Because it is in praying that we draw near and it is in drawing near that we grow to hear the voice of the Lord and the leading of the Holy Spirit and we are grown in that power of discernment and we start growing in truth and we start knowing false when we see it. Paul said this in Ephesians, excuse me, in Philippians, chapter 1, verse 9. He said, and it is my prayer. This is a prayer he's praying for the church. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent. Knowing what is true. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is why praying privately matters, why praying corporately matters. It matters that you are every day guarding your heart in prayer, every day asking the Holy Spirit to guide your life in prayer. It is why we pray corporately in this place every Wednesday at 6.30. I will never stop inviting you to that because the corporate prayers are powerful. It is the way we safeguard our vision. It's the way we safeguard our unity. It's the way we safeguard our doctrine. It's the way we are inspired to go live on mission. We walk by the Spirit, we live in the Word, and we are constant in prayer. What is your life producing? What is the fruit that your life is producing? Because that fruit is exposing the root of your life. I want you to hear me this morning. If the honest evaluation of your life is, I don't produce gospel fruit. I mean, I try to be a good person. But there's nothing in me that wants to share the gospel with somebody. I don't have a burden for people that are lost. Now, we don't want to say that, and we would never say that out loud. I'm asking you to inspect internally. Do you have a burden for the lost? Do you wage war against the sin in your life, or have you gotten comfortable with it? What's your life producing? Because it may very well be that you are not connected to the vine of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, 
You need to be born again. <laughs> you need to be made new by Jesus. You need to be made alive. And if, if your honest confession is, I know that I've been made new. I know that I belong to Jesus. But I'm just not producing fruit. Then today is a day of repentance. It is not a day to act like everything's okay. It's a day to acknowledge that it's not okay and I have got to connect to the vine so I can reproduce Jesus in my life over and over and over. So if you need to come to faith today, I want you to come. If you need to repent, I want you to come. If you've never taken the step of obedience that says, I belong to Jesus, I've just never told anybody about it through baptism, you need to come tell me that. We can baptize you today. We're going to baptize in the next service. Are you abiding in the vine? What does the fruit of your life look like? What does the fruit of those you've invited in to speak into your life look like? Let's lean into the Holy Spirit to those that call to be discerning and that call to walk faithfully with Jesus. So stand with me, let's pray, and then we're going to respond for just a moment. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for the truth, Father. And I pray, God, that this morning you would give us the courage. Lord God, it just takes so much courage to step out. But I pray you would give that in Jesus' name. Amen.